Good evening, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the 2014 Fall Series of the Daily Evolver Live. I'm very happy to be back with you after several weeks on hiatus and running around and doing workshops and interviewing people and um, still continue to post, but it was a, a nice break from uh, doing the podcast each week, and I'm recharged and ready to be back. Um, coming to you from my home, as usual, in Boulder, Colorado, and we are having an absolutely glorious evening here. The leaves are turning. We haven't had a frost, so the flowers are still blooming. It's just beautiful in Boulder. And I'm here with Brett Walker, who is managing the call behind the scenes. Hey, Brett, how you doing tonight? Hey, I'm great. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, good to be back. And of course, little Stella, uh, the one-year-old puppy who is conked out after spending the day with her cousin Charlie and Roman, the French Bulldogs. So we're having a nice night here. Before we want to get into the topics tonight, I, I, want, I want to give a shout out to IntegralLife.com, which is the main web portal for cutting-edge integral thinking. It's where the Ken Wilber archives are and where Ken posts his new thinking and new work. And they also host this podcast and have for several years, for which I'm very grateful. And my work can also be found on my own blog, dailyevolver.com, as well as iTunes and Stitcher. And for those of you who are maybe new or would just like a little help in understanding some of the technical integral jargon I may use, uh, and I do try to keep it to a minimum, uh, you can see a couple charts that are linked to the bottom of the email that was sent to you to remind you of this call. And that'll, you know, have a couple charts. One is the altitudes of development. Then the other is the quadrants of reality. And now give you a little sort of a visual help. If you want to make comments, we'll take some questions and comments at the end of the call. You can uh, raise your hand, if you will, by hitting one. And you can also, we have a new feature on the dailyevolver.com site called SpeakPipe, and it's this little tab on the right of the main page where you can leave questions and comments and ideas for future shows. So um, if you're willing to do that uh, or have a question or comment, please press the button and we can play it on the show. All right. So... Let's just, uh, actually, let's start with a, a, a poll that I'll, I'll get to in a little later. It's a little bit of a foreshadowing of some of what I'm going to talk about tonight. But the question is, who here listening on this call prays? P-R-A-Y-S, who prays? And if you pray, whatever that means to you, press 2. If you don't pray or haven't in a long time, uh, press 3. So pray two, no pray three. And we'll check back on that later in the call. Okay, I mentioned my little dog Stella, and she was here today playing with her friend and cousin Roman, who is just a wonderful little French bulldog who I take care of, you know, a couple days a week. And I just have to report on this amazing new dog training technique that I have discovered. And it's almost too easy, but it's, 
what I do is I talk to them like human beings and explain to them what I want in English language. And it's, it's been remarkable and shockingly effective. Uh, the, the Roman, the French bulldog, who is here, and he's, he's a wonderful dog. He's, you know, that French bulldog thing is kind of, you know, the bad ears and the smashed in face and the big mouth and the big head. But he really has the heart of a collie. And the, I always think the heart of a collie and the mind of a German shepherd. He's just a very, very good dog. And um, his one problem behavior is that he would go crazy when I would leave because he wanted to come along. And I often took him along. He's a perfect gentleman, a great traveler, but sometimes I can't. And he would, you know, when he would see me start getting ready or get my keys or get my coat or whatever it might be, he'd start running around and jumping and jumping on the door and just getting all hysterical. And it was always a drag because, you know, I'd walk to the door and he'd be jumping and then I'd have to like get between him and the door and kick him back and say, hey, Charlie, you know, back, back. And then, you know, I'd get out and then he'd run around the dog door and meet me in the backyard and we'd get to do it all over again. And I was getting into the car. And nothing I did seemed to help for years. Uh, but, you know, on this Daily Evolver, you know, I'm always thinking about, so what's new? What's next in terms of human consciousness and, you know, in terms of where we're growing and developing? And I think about animals a lot because, as I often point out, the way we relate to animals is very tied to our level of development. And there's a new way of relating to animals at the integral stage of development. And that is that we're getting, and this is through postmodern and post-postmodern, we start getting this new insight into the interiority of animals uh, through research. And there's tons of it about the emotional lives of animals and, and intellectual thinking, community lives, their social lives, fish, everything. I've talked about it. The way they communicate. Um, and it's evolving. And we think about, you know, and Pre-modern times, animals didn't fare very well. I always think of growing up in my traditional upbringing with the dogs tied behind the garage and just the way animals were treated and thought of. It was, you know, they were unclean. They weren't, you know, you called somebody a dog or a pig as an insult. It's just, you know, not pretty at that stage. Now, I think at the earlier stages of indigenous life, you know, it's still, you know, life feeds on life and it's, you know, a, a world of killing and eating. But there's a certain... Uh, recognition and honor at the very early stages. But uh, as you get into red and post-modernity, it's not so pretty. And then when you get into modernity, it still isn't that pretty in a way. I mean, we see animals as a means of production. I've, I've mentioned this before that one of the most shocking things, and I looked it up tonight, is the number of chickens that are killed, raised and killed for food in this country is 9 billion that's, think of a million chickens, if you possibly can. That's 9,000 million chickens. And, um, you know, so animals become a means of production at modernity, and we have these factory farms and these meat and egg and dairy, you know, factories, basically. Um, but, um, we, you know, we want to, at this point, keep them healthy, and, and, and you know, there's a certain humanity to it in, in the sense of we want them to, you know, grow and be healthy. But as we move into post-modernity, there's a sensitivity in general towards all victims or all sort of beings that have been left out. And animal rights, as well as gay rights and civil rights and feminism and all of that rises to the fore. Uh, and then at Integral, 
there just seems to be, you know, sort of a different move and uh, a realization of how we actually literally share the deep structures of thinking and emotion with animals. That animals like us have a first-person awareness, an identity, a selfness. It's not self-conscious like humans. I mean, that's the big leap in humanity is that we're aware of our awareness. But a uniqueness and an identity, nevertheless, in all animals. And then also a second-person dimension of connection, of uh, the need to relate and Yes, love and be loved. I mean, all animals have that. That's something we learn as we grow. And, you know, hell, integral theory tells us that even atoms have that in their sort of little teeny proto ways. So, um, you know, doing a lot of thinking about this and thinking about Roman. And, you know, all of, you know, it just stops making sense to me to keep doing this shouting and scolding and, you know, this whole thing I've been doing. And so I noticed a few weeks ago, as I was getting ready to go out and Roman was starting his crazy behavior, I decided to do something different. And I just turned and I looked at him and I explained the situation to him. I said, so tonight, Roman, you can't come with Uncle Jeff because I need you for another job. I need you to guard the house. You're a really wonderful guard dog. You have wonderful ears and you're very attentive and you're very smart. And I'm counting on you to take care of little Stella and look around and just keep an eye on things. And, and Uncle Jeff will be back uh, in a few hours. And I swear to God, he got it. He looked at me and he got it. And he sat there and he watched me get ready. And I told him what a good boy he was. And he followed me to the kitchen and stood there as I walked out the door. And we have not had a problem with this since. And in fact, there's just a sort of a deeper connectedness. And I've also been doing it with my little dog, Stella, who sort of gets, you know, overly barky when people come to the house. She's a little chihuahua dachshund mix. And, um, you know, instead of scolding her, which is what I was doing for, you know, months, and it was not getting better, I just now stop and take the time, really, to just get her attention. Sometimes I'll pick her up or just get her attention, have my, you know, whoever's entering the house sort of stand there while I do this. And just explain that, thank you, Stella, you're a good little watchdog. This person's a friend, they're in, and now you can relax. And again, um, 70, 80% better in no time at all. And I'm just sort of astonished at this. And the sort of reality of development. It makes me realize that this is how development happened. One of the things that I did over the hiatus was I went to a workshop by Terry O'Fallon of Pacific Integral. And Terry's a wonderful researcher in development, and she stands in the shoulders, of course, of Ken, and Ken supports her work, Ken Wilbur, and Susan Cook-Reuter, who also supports her work, and uh, she's been doing research, and she's mapping out these higher stages of development. And uh, one of the sort of principles of development that she pointed out that was so powerful was this idea that as we develop, we get something, and then some, that something begins to get us. And I can see that in this sort of uh, growth of my awareness and capacity with relating to animals, is that I understood it, 
And I was looking at the research and I was thinking about it and, you know, my heart was breaking about it. And then all of a sudden tables turned and it has me and I'm just sort of inhabited by it. And this is one of the things that I've been realizing in general about development is that just to the degree that it happens under its own power, uh, that, you know, if you leave a three-year-old alone and, you know, feed and clothe and love the three-year-old, he or she will grow into a five-year-old, four-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old. And that, you know, if you plant the rose, it'll bloom, but you can't make it bloom and you can't stop it from blooming if the conditions are maintained. It, the, the, the procreant urge of the world is built in. And one of the things that it makes me realize that is such a relief and I so appreciate is it, it sort of helps me drop that first tier, if you will, sort of every first tier meme has this idea that something gone, has gone terribly wrong with the world. You know, we disobeyed God or we have uh, rationality led us to the atomic bomb or whatever it might be. Something Human beings have once again driven the bus into the ditch. And so have I. You know, I screwed up my life too and I have to fix it. And this realization of just sort of the growth built into our experience um, doesn't take me off the hook totally, nor should it. I mean, we, we do need to swim upstream as we're, you know, developing. We have to, you know, consciously enter new territories and take up residency and practices and so forth. But we also realize that that's going to happen under its own power if we just stay awake and alive and attentive and loving. And I like that. It just sort of takes some of the heat off. <laughs> All right. So that's that. And, um, oh boy, we have our results. We have 63% of the people pray and 37% don't. And, you know, I get it. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but um, this is uh, roughly similar to the results we got at the Integral Living Room, which we just did this last weekend, which is an event that most of you may know of, and that's um, where we get together in Boulder, just Integral practitioners. And Terry Patton and Diane Hamilton and I uh, uh, lead the weekend, and basically we talk about things. It's, it's about conversation. And, um, and so we just had one and we talked a lot about God and we talked a lot about um, just basically what we would call the ultimate questions of humanity. And these are questions that hum humans have always asked. And that is, who am I? What am I doing here? What is the nature of this life? How am I to live it? You know, these big questions and every stage of development has a different answer. And so we're, you know, looking at what's the integral answer. And, you know, sort of just as a basis uh, orienting principle is integral is going to include a spiritual dimension in first person, second person, and third person. And first person is this, um, basically the growth of awareness, of identity, so that one, and this is meditation and contemplation, it's, you know, it's, it's more one's own interior growth and development. So that eventually one sees that one is the cosmos itself, 
That's how big that gets. But also second person, um, the love and the sort of connectedness and um, the we space, the we-ness that is built into the fabric of the universe. Just from, from moment one, it was, it was just, just as the third person, all the stuff of the universe, the material of the universe, burst into being during the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, and of course, third person is the, you know, all of the manifest reality. Uh, so did second and first person. And they were there from the beginning and they've been developing from the beginning, as has third person. And so anyway, there's a first person spiritual practice. There's a second person spiritual practice. There's the practice of relatedness and, and, and relating to the other, including the great other, the person you pray to. <laughs> In fact, there's a great quote from... Um, the actor Steve Buscemi, who is, um, you know, a lot of us know him. He's in uh, Boardwalk Empire, I believe. But he has a great quote. He says, who is God? Well, you know, when you want something really bad and you close your eyes and you wish for it, God's the guy that ignores you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's, that's the modernist view. We'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I, I want to look at something that has been just so interesting in the cultural milieu in the last week or so here in America, at least. And that is the kerfuffle that was uh, manifest on Bill Maher's show, um, Real Time, on HBO, with him and Sam Harris, uh, the noted atheist, the author of um, The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation, and currently a book we'll talk about in a minute called Waking Up, a guide to spirituality without religion uh, on one side, and then Ben Affleck and Nick Kristoff, the New York Times columnist, on the other side. And it, was, it started out with this thing that Bill Maher is, uh, talks about a lot, and it actually gets to the crux of part of the rub that we have in progressive society as we try to navigate this um, you know, understanding of radical Islam and ISIS and the dangers in this region and the dangers they present to the world. And, um, and Bill Maher makes the point that liberals need to stand up for liberal principles like freedom of speech, uh, the, the freedom to practice any religion, equality for women, for homosexuals. And if you point out to a liberal that these are lacking in the Muslim world, they get upset because it's racist. And, and Sam Harris, of course, agreed with Bill, Bill Maher and said that, uh, and I think I'm quoting directly here, he said, we've been sold this meme of Islamophobia, where any criticism of the doctrines of Islam gets conflated with bigotry of Muslims as people. And then Ben Affleck jumped in and he said, so you're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. And, you know, to say that is gross and racist, it's like calling somebody a shifty Jew, to which Sam Harris said, well, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas, and Islam is the motherload of bad ideas, and, and we were off to the races. I'll actually link to it. Uh, it's on YouTube on my site. But it was, um, you know, just a conversation that liberals are having all over the place, and a lot of my friends are having. And, you know, how do you deal with this? And... This is where you just wish that these folks would 
bring in a developmental view. I mean, they're, and they're close in a certain way. But what we realize from a developmental view is that it's not primarily, there, you know, there may be sort of differences at the margins, but it's not primarily the doctrines of religions that are violent. People are violent at early stages of development. People at the tribal and warrior stage of development are multiples of times more violent than people at modern and, for God's sakes, postmodern people. And, and then as you move up towards traditionalism and modernism and postmodernism, uh, you get progressively less violent, as does the religion. And Dustin DePerna, who is a wonderful integral thinker, he's a has an MDiv from Harvard and uh, has been part of the integral scene for a long time, has written a couple books. Um, he wrote a blog post that's on integral life. And I'll, I'll link to that as well, but I just want to read a little bit about what he said. He says, there's not one version of Islam that is either good or bad. There are at least five versions of Islam, all dependent upon specific levels of interpretation. Each of these levels is not arbitrary. They are consistent across traditions. In other words, they're, they're consistent across Christianity and Buddhism and, and all religions and can be correlated with very specific stages of psychological development. The point of all of this is that the discourse between Ben Affleck and Sam Harris is not just a case of understanding the difference between extremists and moderates, good, good Muslims versus bad Muslims. That binary outlook no longer serves us. Rather, what is needed is the critical comprehension that individuals with different levels of development are enacting Islam and all other religious traditions according to their own worldviews and levels of development. And even more important, we must come to the understanding that there are paths that can be highlighted that can help individuals move along that developmental spectrum from magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic, to integral versions of each tradition. And as development unfolds, interpretations of faith move from being more restrictive, egocentric, and ethnocentric to views and orientations that are more compassionate, open, and world-centric. And um, I think that is very, very well put. And one of the things that developmental theory really just brings to the party it's not good, you know, is Islam good or bad? I mean, if you, I mean, look at the, the violent Buddhists in the world. They're actually, you know, getting some attention and they're cultivating attention. The riots in, in early summer in Sri Lanka by the Buddhist power force, which is a political movement that's stated aim is to um, preserve the Buddhist and Singhala ethnicity in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. And their complaint is they feel that their identity is being eroded by multiculturalism, liberalism, and foreign elements. And this is always the defensive stance of these traditional and even pre-traditional interpretations of religion, is that we're being um, diluted. We're being overwhelmed by these, you know, forces of multiculturalism. They're, they're really just not ready for it. They don't like it. I think of the people I grew up with in uh, my fundamentalist Christian church in Western Pennsylvania, they were allergic to liberal thinking. 
because it challenges a fundamental view of the world that the universe is a battle between God and the devil, and that, you know, we have to follow a certain path. Uh, this is also true of uh, in Miramar, the, 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 the uh, Ashen Thera cult there. That is, uh, he's Burma's Buddhist bin Laden. Of course, we think of the, you know, Japanese Zen masters in World War II that were you know, the worst of the militant nationalists. So, you know, Buddhism goes through that stage too. And now, you know, Buddhism, particularly in the West, has been transplanted in a way that leaves so much cultural baggage behind, which is great. It's actually one of the sort of engines of development. So Buddhism lands in the West, and it's just, you know, basically the, the teachings themselves, which are so pristine and beautiful without, you know, being transplanted into a green culture. And then there's, the, you know, the exemplar of this, which is the Dalai Lama, who himself is green plus. And, uh, you know, his, his statement about Buddhism is that my religion is peace, you know, which is, you know, just so beautiful. But every religion gets there. Um, if, and, you know, and our job is to try to keep them from killing each other in the meantime. Um, you know, of course, we all know the violent origins of Christianity. I mean, it's, you know, we have ISIS beheading people, but gosh, I mean, we just, one of the things we did at the Integral Living Room was we watched some of the Cosmos series, the Neil deGrasse Tyson TV documentary series, where it's basically a great overview of scientific you know, the latest in scientific mainstream thought. And they gave a lot of history, one, one story of which was the story of Giordano Bruno, who in the 15th century was burned at the stake for his beliefs about the, you know, universe being infinite and, you know, just anything that was outside of the Bible, of the texts. And so, you know, the Inquisition, let's hope, that ISIS doesn't get the idea that, okay, you know, we're, we're sort of, the beheadings are getting kind of old. Let's try some burnings at the stake and, you know, film them and all of that. Or any of the tortures of the Inquisition uh, and, uh, and also doctrine uh, in the Bible uh, that, you know, blessed will be, the, I, have, I have this one down here, blessed will be the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. That's Psalms 137.9. And then, of course, you know, slaves obey your masters, women obey your husbands, homosexuals put to death. It's all there. People find a way to, to sort of ignore it selectively. Uh, they see it as symbolic. They, they hold on to it in a certain way. They get to don't ask, don't tell. You know, they marginalize, they equivocate. But eventually, they grow. And these doctrines don't because they were written two, 3,000 years ago. And it's not a problem. You know, I mean, it is. It's an ongoing problem, but uh, Islam is still in that process. And, you know, there are reasons for that, and there's geopolitical reasons, and there's cultural reasons, and there may even be religious reasons. I'm not a, a you know, a scholar of Islam in terms of the actual doctrine. You know, that can steer the ship, you know, a few degrees one way or the other, too. But this is the conversation we ought to be having, not this, you know, I mean, well, no, we should be having the conversation that we're having. I'm thrilled with the conversation that went on, at, uh, on uh, with Bill Maher and, and Ben Affleck. And I'm thrilled with all of the commentary and the conversations that I've had with friends about it because it really does help us. This is the way we move the ball.
And then we see that yesterday, the Catholic Church out of the Vatican um, issues a, a, a report from the, what do they call it, the Extraordinary Synod, Synod S-Y-N-O-D, Synod of the Bishops. And um, one of the report sections is titled Welcoming Homosexual Persons. And, you know, this is just Christianity and, and you know, the, the, the Church of St. Peter. This is the, the rock of Christianity moving. I don't know if it's cracking, but it's definitely moving. And, you know, there was a conservative blowback today where the conservative bishop said, well, no, when the doctrine's not changing, this was overhyped by the media and this is not what we, you know, whatever. But this, too, is the way things move forward. Uh, no, uh, you know, no hard, fast laws have changed in the lower right quadrant, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know, the actual systems of, of humans. But, and this is, you know, this Pope Francis' specialty, the tone changed, the language changed, the thinking changed, the hearts and minds changed, and these are in the left-hand quadrants. And they, you know, it's all happening at the same time and one fuels the other, but this guy is a potent force for moving, you know, the rock of Christianity, the Roman Catholic Church, into modernity and post-modernity. Uh, I, I thought the, uh, the author, I wish I could remember his name, who wrote a, a, a report in the magazine The Week, and I'll just read a paragraph. He said, this is not about changing doctrine, but tone. Tone has always been the Francis papacy. It's what's on the table with him. The style that Pope Francis lives in is one that starts with a spirit of embrace, of mercy, and not with sin. It begins with figuring out at what point embrace is possible before determining the points of which it is not. That may be one reason why people like top Vatican watcher John Thavis is calling this mid-synod report an earthquake. So that's good, but that's, you know, that's where the Christian church is center of gravity. Why is the, Muslim, the Islam is still, you know, there's millions of, of course, modern Islam, modern Muslims in Indonesia and in and in America, um, I saw one thing that would lead me to believe that Muslims are uh, among the most progressive. It's a strange little statistic, but it caught my eye, especially as we've been thinking about the cosmos and the, you know, the nature of the universe and all of this, is, you know, what are the chances of uh, there being uh, aliens out there in the universe? And the latest estimates of the number of planets in the universe is, um, oh, I have it here. Well, I guess the first number doesn't matter because it's followed by 21 zeros, a six, sex, six sextillion planets in the universe. And, um, you know, one of the things we're realizing is just sort of this tenacity and this sort of imperative behind life itself as a principle of the universe that, you know, I think there's a ever and ever greater argument for the, you know, there's life not only somewhere, but everywhere, all kinds of places. But currently, 55% of Americans think that aliens exist. Uh, among religious people, or I'm sorry, 55% of atheists think that uh, aliens exist. Um, 
in terms of religions, the highest religious, um, highest religion that thinks that is the Muslim religion in, in America, and they're 45%. And it goes down from there until you get to the Baptists, which is under 30%. And you can see, I mean, that's just sort of, you know, to think that there are aliens in the universe represents a cosmocentric view, at least in the right-hand quadrants, at least we can see. And by see, I mean capital S-C. We can begin to apprehend the immensity of this universe and not just see it as a caricature, you know, or, or, or something that people are talking about to annoy you, <laughs> which is what, you know, we generally think about things before we get them. So anyway, um, uh, there's a little shred of evidence that the Muslims may be ahead of the game. All right. Actually, I'll just read a little line here from uh, one of our listeners, Greg, who wrote a very nice response, uh, supportive response to a, a blog post that Brett wrote on why religion is not the source of violence. It was in response. It was you know a blog post along the same uh, the same topic. Um, and, and Brett was responding to, I'm forgetting his name, but he was a, um, uh, a blogger on Huffington Post who wrote this blog about, you know, if only we could get rid of religion, we'd be fine. And of course, that's not the integral view. Uh, but Greg writes in, he says, there's a large chunk of people who are faced with the apparent choice of staying at mythic or ditching the whole religion completely and going to rational. The perceived choices are, colon, Either the whole thing is true, miracles and all, or it's just an illusion with nothing of value, including salvation. And that's a problem. People don't want to choose. And that's where integral, um, or that's why, you know, people at, at pre-modern choose the myth. When you get to modern, you sort of have to lose your religion a bit. Um, and, and then you move to postmodern, which sort of resensitizes ourselves to spiritual experience. We become experimental with, you know, Eastern religions and psychology and different kinds of therapies and the sort of whole interior exploration. Uh, and then when we get to integral, we start, you know, taking it more seriously again. And this is one of the things, um, you know, I was talking about some of the things I've been doing over hiatus. And I had this, uh, actually several conversations with Ken Wilber one of which I posted uh, on the Daily Evolver site, the other one's on the Inter Integral Living Room site. And then also the, the Integral Living Room, we were working on this. I've been reading Steve McIntosh's new book, The Presence of the Infinite, just wonderful. Um, Terry O'Fallon went to her workshop, again, on these higher stages of development. And one of the things that I see that people are working on in the Integral Movement, it's sort of what's next as we think about, you know, the three-year-old growing into a four-year-old, it's kind of the next thing that wants to happen among a certain center of gravity of um, self-identified integralists is just relating to spirit in a fuller way. And so a lot of us get the first person. A lot of us have been doing meditation. We have you know, expanded awareness. We can get certain kinds of cessation of thought. Um, this is uh, actually a, a, a stage that um, I mentioned Sam Harris a minute ago where he got in um, a little bit of a ringer with Ben Affleck and the Bill Marshall, but 
He's also been a very, he's a very interesting guy. He's a, a, a you know, public intellectual. He's a thinker. He's a um, neuroscientist by trade. He's one of the leading, most celebrated atheists up there with Dawkins and Bill Maher in his own way. And uh, he wrote the book, The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation, which were very tough critiques of the Christian, you know, particularly traditional worldview. But he just came out with a new book called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And this is shocking enough, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion by Sam Harris, Waking Up. And it turns out he's been a meditator for a long time in the Upandita lineage of Theravada Buddhism, which is, you know, very severe in a way. They, they have these long retreats where they meditate 18 hours a day and they don't eat afternoon and, uh, you know, they don't sleep more than four hours a night. And it's a very rigorous practice. God bless them for doing it. And, um, and he's writing about what he's seeing, you know. So he's coming from this scientific material place and let me just read a little bit about what he has posted on his website about the book. And uh, he says, Waking up draws from personal contemplative practice and a growing body of scientific research that argues that the self, the feeling that there is an I residing in one's head, sort of this discrete self or ego living like a minotaur in the labyrinth of the brain, is both an illusion and the primary cause of human suffering. Now, this is, you know, this is just doctrinaire Buddhism so far, and continues, actually. He says, through meditation, this illusion can be extinguished, resulting in a deep sense of personal well-being, regardless of circumstances, and also in compassionate and ethical behaviors towards others. The reality of such self-transcendence has been hitched to unwarranted claims about the nature of the universe by persons of faith and also by most atheists and skeptics. The great value and novelty of this book, and this is from Publishers Weekly Review, is that Harris, in a simple and rigorous style, takes the middle way between these pseudoscientific and pseudo-spiritual assertions cogently maintaining that while such contemplative insights provide no evidence for metaphysical claims, they are indeed available to us. And that seeing them, in other words, seeing this cessation or this sort of um, insubstantiability of the I, of this ego, of this sense of self, seeing that for ourselves leads to a profoundly more salubrious, I love that word, salubrious life. I think that's a good word, good thing, to be salubrious. So, you know, he talks about his meditation experiences and what he sees and how so he's very good. I mean, it's a wonderful book. It's getting a lot of attention. It's selling very well. And I'm thrilled that it's in the culture. I'm sort of sorry that he got, you know, sort of slammed in the Bill Maher thing because he kind of asked for it. But, you know, God bless him. He's out there in the arena. But just one last couple lines that he wrote that is, this is actually from the book itself after he's talking about all of his experiences and blissful expanse of consciousness and, you know, things other than the normal sensory challenges or channels. In fact, he writes, many scientists and philosophers believe that consciousness is always tied to one of the five senses and that the idea of a consciousness apart from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching is a category error and a spiritual fantasy. I am confident that they are mistaken. 
And wow, so he's asserting something based on experience uh, and based on something he saw and, and, you know, and, and a certain kind of you know, faith in a way. And then he ends by saying, there's no compelling reason to believe that the mind is independent of the brain. Now, of course, Integral would say that the mind is, you know, the brain is a receiver for the mind, that the mind exists and intelligence and love exists independent and concurrent, interpenetrated with the brain, but it's not reducible to the brain. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and yet the play, the attitude towards consciousness taken by many scientists, where reality is considered only from the outside third-person terms, that is, all consciousness is reducible to neuronal activity, worries me as well. The middle path exists between making spiritual life religious and having no spiritual life at all. So anyway, I think that is um, progress in the culture to have Sam, Sam Harris be writing things like that. And it's one of the things that we did at the Integral Living Room. And I, I see this happening more and more. Again, I just feel like this is sort of the natural growth of people in, in integral consciousness who are at least consciously working on it, is to develop uh, a, more of a second-person relationship to spirit. And one of the things we did at the uh, living room is we do this exercise where we have people get up out of their chairs. They're, they're in triads, so there's three people. And everybody takes a turn and when, when it's your turn, you get up and you move behind your chair and you hold on to the back of your chair and you look down from this standing perspective on yourself uh, as, it was, as you were sitting in the chair. And the person looking down on you in the chair is your higher self. And so we interview the higher self. And this is the self who sees, in my case, Jeff, but is um, transcendent of Jeff, at least a little bit. You know, in evolution, we talk about everything is included that's previous and then transcended. So there's this sort of normal, everyday Jeff, the one who thinks that there is actually an identity in his head, as Sam Harris was talking. And then there's this sort of bigger Jeff who sees, a, has a bigger view. And, you, you know, this is just the nature of spiritual reality, is that when we have a bigger view, that, that bigger space is imbued with a loving intelligence. It just is. This is the nature of the universe. And so this bigger Jeff, this higher Jeff, uh, has insight into Jeff's life and struggles and challenges and gifts and opportunities and the world itself that are often elusive to, to normal everyday Jeff. So this is an exercise that we did and, and um, there was actually a conference in Idaho, uh, kind of a high-end creative conference for business people called the Hatch Conference. And they did this exercise based on the integral living room up there. And a, a reporter from Forbes magazine was there and did the exercise and was just, you know, very moved and illuminated by it and has written an article that... Um, you know, is very positive about it. And let's hope that that's really true and it stays positive as it goes through the editorial process. It'll be interesting to see how that happens. But also we were um, at the Integral Living Room 
experimenting with another stage of this, and that is through prayer. And the actual relating to a higher power, that's even higher yet, uh, the creator of the universe, or at least the mystery. I mean, this is one of the things that it, 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 Ken talks about, is that it's just sort of the, the nature of the stage of development that we're at, is that as human beings, we've gone from a world where God was everywhere. And this is 99% of human history. It was in the magic, you know, and the world was enchanted with spirits and, you know, the, on the downside, curses and hexes, but on the upside, blessings and gifts. And, and this is most of human history, is this magical realm. And then there's the mythic realm where... Um, we have gods, and, and God, first of all, gods as superpowers and superhumans, like comic book gods. Uh, this is, you know, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, and this is sort of a high level of that, what we would call red in, in um, the altitude development. And then we move to the mythic, which is um, God as a great other in another world. And this is, in the Western tradition, an actual being, God. Uh, in Christian tradition with the Son Jesus and all of that. In the Eastern tradition, it's more of a principle, nirvana, uh, or the Tao, the sort of uh, prior perfection of the universe that we can, that we've fallen from. I mean, again, every first-tier meme has some disaster story, and that we can get back to if we obey and follow the precepts and all of that good stuff. And this, of course, is Every step of this is, every speck of this is a huge achievement in, in human history. Um, but then we go to a stage of development where God is nowhere. And that's the modern stage where all we realize that the world is knowable in its own terms. And that we can measure and use logic and analyze and uh, the, you know, that lightning isn't really an act of God, that it's just the discharge of positive and negative ions in the atmosphere. And, you know, there's a disenchantment of the world. There's a, there's a, this, I mentioned that it, when we move to modern, that we sort of have to lose our religion. And we do. And that's, you know, not easy. It's certainly not something you do before you're ready. You know, you can't talk people into it. Uh, I always love, I forget who said it, but it's a great saying. You can't talk people out of something they didn't talk themselves into in the first place. And this is, again, development. It's not about figuring it out. It's not about growing in the sense of, you know, self-development or self-improvement. It's about just continuing to see. What are you actually able to see? And so, you know, at some point you see the world from this rational perspective. And so we go from a world where God is everywhere to God is nowhere. And now we're moving into a world where God, we realize that the God is nowhere has its own limitations, not only in terms of, you know, it's a bummer to think that we're, you know, random events on a flying snowball <laughs> through space. That's a bummer. Um, but that's no reason to believe something that's not true. But that actually we realize that it is true, that there are it's not just about the snowball and our neurons and about genes and all of the exterior aspects of reality, but that there are dimensions of loving intelligence that are built into the system that we can relate to. And so we, um, we prayed. <laughs> and Terry Patton, who is 
you know, I mean, he has a wonderful transmission. Uh, he led a wonderful session uh, where we got into di triads, three people, and and did, you know, the sort of prayer experiment, if you will. And uh, it was very powerful. I mean, I was with two people that basically had a bit of a conversion experience. I mean, just realized that, wait a second, I actually can relate to a dimension of the universe that I can not only love and, you know, relate to, but who loves me back and sees me back. And, um, and that's, and, you know, in my prayers, you know, I just go right there with Mother, Father, God, and the whole bit. You know, I was raised, a, you know, in a nice, a good Bible-believing church. So I, I got that download in the mythic stage. I can bring that back to an integral stage of development, and it's liberated from, you know, this sense that it's the only true thing. And it's liberated into its, you know, as the Buddhists would say, it's liberated into its wisdom. You know, so that I can actually begin to, to again relate to a loving God that I, you know, at this stage of the game have no idea who it is. Uh, Terry uh, is more, um, you know, just praying to the mystery. It's a little bit of a third person, but it has this, the um, qualities. This is, you know, these first, second, third, they're all unified, of course, and they're all arising at the same time. They're completely interpenetrated. We separate them just to sort of analyze them. But um, there's lots of ways to go here. And this is the cutting edge, uh, in my view. This is, and, and this is what I've been seeing in the last you know, five or six weeks that I've been on hiatus and I've just been doing more exploration and actual personal work. That this is some of where it's at. Sue. Hey, Jeff. Yes, Brett. I wanted to mention that you, know, you, you used the term higher self a couple times. Yeah. Um, whenever I say that, uh, I don't know, maybe once every 10 times, there's somebody in the room that is more um, into the descendant type of spiritual practice than the ascendant. Mm -hmm. And they tend to correct me. Mm -hmm. They prefer, you know, larger self or bigger self, yeah. you know, because higher self, it sort of has this connotation that, you know, the further we get away from the earth and away from our gross bodies, you know, the more transcendent we are. Right. Um, and I, I can appreciate that because, in, you know, sometimes I get a little tired of this idea of transcendence, you know. I want to, I do want to get closer to the earth yeah. and closer to my humanity, you know. Right. Down in the mud and the blood and the beer. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, you, and that's, that's the beauty of, that's first of all, the beauty of the integral is that, you know, we'll take any, we'll, we'll, we'll take the, squeeze the juice out of any view or doctrine um, in a good way. And you're right, uh, the, there's a certain uh, reflexive momentum to think of God in terms of higher terms, because that's, you know, the transcendent God is the, you know, the, the big God in, 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 on the planet right now, center of gravity. But yeah, moving forward also requires getting deeper. And, uh, you know, more embodied and more of the belly and more of the subtle energies. And it's all part of the unfolding into, you know, what's next. So thank you, folks, for joining me for the Daily Evolver Live tonight. We'll see you again next Tuesday night. 
Till then, this is Jeff Salzman signing off. Have a great week.